Hey guys, welcome back to Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode with my brother, Adam. He's became a brother in Christ, somebody that I've come to rely on. Um, he's been, he's an author, coach, law enforcement, retired law enforcement, FBI hostage negotiator. Um, he's also, he's, he went from being a victim to being a victor. And today I want to talk about something on his book, especially everybody has a blue room. We're going to talk about how to clean up that blue room and paint it whatever color you want to paint it. So Adam, welcome to the show, my brother. And guys, like I said, this book right here changed my life, especially, and I'm going to tell you, because I can even tell you what page changed my life was page 33 actually changed my life because I have a blue room that I finally cleared out because of this book. So Adam, my brother, welcome to the show. Richard, thank you so much for having me. It is a, truly an honor to be able to get on and, and to, to spend some time talking with you and to share with your audience. And thank you for, for your kind words. And it, it's really humbling. I mean that. It's really humbling to hear that. And I'm super grateful that my story has had an impact on on your life. That means a lot to me. Um, you know, I, I would like to think that some of my experiences have helped me to overcome adversity. Um, but I'm just really grateful to be here today. And that's, this is where I'm focused right now. I'm just really big, really grateful. I love it. Now, guys, as you guys know, I'm not a professional whatsoever. I'm a ninth grade dropout. Uh, but like I said, I've had over 560 interviews with gentlemen like Adam, um, authors, doctors, psychologists. And I found out that when somebody acts out, an adult acts out, mm -hmm. it's usually because of something that happened between the ages of three and 13. And then because I, I love my first responders, my law enforcement officer, my veterans. Then when we get put into those certain situations is when we start acting out as adults. But first, before I even start, because I got a traumatic brain injury, if I don't ask you the question, I'm going to forget it. Um, what is your definition of resiliency? For me, the definition of resiliency is, well, living unconquered. It's surrendering the pain, being able to bounce back no matter what. You bounce back stronger. You come back stronger. And you can look back on the pain you've been through and you could thank the people that hurt you because you wouldn't be where you are today without the pain. And that's true forgiveness for me. That's what it means for me. And so being able to bounce back stronger, live unconquered and discover how to be a victorious warrior, no matter what you've been through or where you go or what you go through in the future. All right. So, and guys make sure that um, this is going to be a very uh, heart wrenching discussion we're going to have but it's also going to be a positive discussion that we're going to have because in my town i'm the person that's in charge of the um it, we used to call it the dare program um now it's called uh something else um but you know as i'm working with adolescents i've realized that over five thousand adolescents attempt suicide every day in the United States. And it's because 
nobody's talking about the stuff that we are going to talk about. And one of your books, I have, I got two books that really touched me. And your, this book is one of them. And the other book is called A Child Called It. And that book really hit home for me because I come from an abused household. So we're going to get down to the nitty gritty real quick. So on page, you know, on page 30, 32, 33, you talk about that five-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. So first I want to talk about what that five-year-old boy was like before. And then what that five-year-old boy was like after. Because I've had, I had a young lady on, her name is Annette Wittenberger, friend of mine, veteran. She was abused as a little girl. And she told me how, at one point when she was young, younger, she was outgoing, gregarious. Mm-hmm. And then after the abuse, she became inward and wasn't talking to anybody. So that's mm-hmm. why, you know, I want some people to start seeing some things. They might start noticing things as we talk. So what were you like, as you can remember, before the abuse? Yeah, I, I don't really have a clear memory of what I was like before that. That's probably... Um, probably one of my first memories and because i mean it was like i still have blocks of memory that are just kind of gone and um i don't know if that's trauma or what that's called but i know that i would have like today's a really rainy day where we're at here in south alabama and i would have uh, a, a red flyer wagon you remember those the metal wagons yeah and so we'd have a ditch out in the front yard and that ditch would fill it with water. And, uh, we lived in a neighborhood, so there's nowhere to fish around. And so I would go out and I would get a limb and I would put that wagon in the ditch. So the water come up to the edge of the wagon and I pretend like I was fishing and, uh, and I would, yeah, I'd love to do that. Or I play, play in the yard with trucks and toys and, um, just, a, I was a dreamer. I would, I remember, I remember going through the, back when they used to have catalogs mm-hmm. and these are things that I've, I've, I didn't write in the book and I've never talked about anywhere before. Um, but I would, I, I forget the catalogs. It was like a Sears Christmas catalog and I would go through those catalogs and I would highlight what I wanted. And I had this thought that if I wanted it bad enough, it would just appear like I could make it appear and I wouldn't even have to wait for Christmas. (laughs) I was like delusional, but it was just, I was a kid. I was a dreamer. And um, then mom and dad divorced and like so many do. I mean, it's not uncommon. It's not rare, you know? Um, And then I was left with a neighbor who would um, play with me. He would fix food. We'd play games. Let me watch cartoons and he was not a family member. I like to make that super clear. My my dad has never hurt me. He's probably one of the only people other than my wife and Jesus to fight for me. Uh, but it turned into him putting pornography uh, VHS tapes into the VCR and playing them. And then eventually, um, yeah, so rape and sodomy followed that. Man, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know those words at the time. I didn't, at that age, you don't kind of, you know, when somebody does those things to you um, and nobody's had a time to, to sit down and say, if anybody ever does anything or whatever, this is what you're supposed to do. There wasn't a rule book installed yet. Um, 
but I remember shortly after I would have uncontrollable bowel movements. And so they would take me to psychiatrists and doctors and try to see why I was doing this. And then I developed a speech impediment. So they take me to speech therapist and again to psychiatrists and say, why is he having these issues? Well, I wasn't talking about it because the guy told me, Hey, if you ever say anything, I'll kill you. I know exactly where you live. You can't run. You can't hide. And a short time later, I don't remember how long, uh, and this happened over a period of time. I'm not sure if it was months, a year. I don't remember, but it was not just one time. It was several occasions. And I mean, there's graphic details that I could, that I could think about uh, and I could bring up and they don't really have a negative impact on me anymore. They used to, but they don't anymore. And then when he moved off, I just kind of moved on, you know, I moved on. And about that time, my mother remarried a, a Pentecostal preacher. So we was in church 12, 14 days a week. <laughs> and um he had two sons he brought and so we would spend a lot of time playing outside and just different things so we never i just carried on i i moved on but i wasn't as you know i i think what pisses me off the most is the childhood that he robbed me of that could have been you know and my perspective of of different things but uh, about 10 years later, it would happen again under different circumstances. Uh, but this time with a woman who was an adult and married. And so certainly different dynamics, but it, it created some challenges to overcome as well. All right. So now let me ask you, because um, I went through some abuse. And, um, and for me, my solace was books. My solace, that was my safe place. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I still got... 15 books from reading at one time right now. I've read over 6,000 books because that was my one safe place. You couldn't hurt me if I'm reading a book because it would go, I would go somewhere else. So what was your solace during these times? Were there any go-tos like music, sports, anything like that? Probably not as, as a little boy, as a teenager, it was, and I like, I never thought about this until after I began writing. As a, as a law enforcement officer, when I quit drinking every night, I started writing. And one day it just hit me. Like when all this stuff was going on and I was a teenager, I've got an attic full of stuff that's never been put out anywhere. Probably not worthy to be put out anywhere, but I've got a, an attic full of stuff that's words that I wrote, whether it was poems or whether it was just whatever, songs, whatever that I would just sit down and write. And that was how I found healing. It was, it was healing for me. And I didn't have, I didn't correlate that. Like I I didn't have a, an understanding of what was going on. And then as a law enforcement officer, when I was really on a path to healing, I quit drinking and I started writing was no plan was like, it wasn't orchestrated. It just, Hey, this feels a lot better than what I was doing. And I began to write. And then one day it hit me. This has been my go-to. Like this has been my way of kind of dumping this stuff out. And yeah, I I would have to say that I I don't know about as a child, but as a, as a teenager and adult, it's always been writing. Okay. So now you, you got into law enforcement. Um, So talk to us a little bit about that. 
because I found that if somebody grows up in an abused household around drugs, alcohol, whatever, they can go one of two ways. Mm-hmm. Like one of my best friends, um, he, he became a police officer. His brother became a drug addict and now he's gone um, because his father is doing life for serial rape. And I asked them both the question, how did they end up that way? And they said, because my father's doing life. So they both made a different decision. What was your your thought process in becoming a law enforcement officer? As a teenager, whenever I was 15, I'm going to back up just a little bit. Sorry. Um, but as a teenager, when I contacted my dad and told him about some of the things that had been going on, and it was nothing that he had any knowledge or control over. It was more about, uh, it was in a church that I was at with other family and things. And, um, like I can look back and I can tell you, man, I was really deceived and I can look back and see kind of how I was groomed. Um, but I didn't see it at the time. And so I contacted my dad on a Wednesday night and I'd gone to a, a different church where I was trying to break away from that other stuff. Cause I had, I could drive. And as soon as I had the freedom to go somewhere else, I did. And I locked my keys in my truck and I told my dad what was going on. And his first move was he wanted to protect me. And so what that did was, you know, if I told other 15 year old, 16 year old boys, what I, what was going on, they'd high five and think I was, you know, whatever, think it's cool but it really screwed up my perspective of healthy relationships and church and, you know, my relationship with God because this person was a leader in the church and it really made my heart really hard towards God. Um, but two years later I got married at 18 and I told my wife about all these things and expressed, you know, all this stuff. And, um, but growing up working around my dad, he's been a small business owner for more than four decades. Um, we had a lot of, law enforcement friends. And I saw these guys and I was like, I want to be like these guys. I like the way I feel hanging around them and uh, they're reliable. They're good people. They got good families. I want to be like that. And, um, you know, this year, this fall will be 23 years that my wife and I've been married through all of this stuff, like through everything she stuck with me. And so for me to be able to look back and say, I've overcome this, this, and this, and I'm still here and she's still with me is really a testament to the faithfulness of God to preserve us. And I wanted to become a cop because I wanted to be a good man. And, and I wanted to have a difference. I wanted to make a difference in the, in lives of people that were hurting, that were suffering. And um, yeah. And I got into it thinking that I was pretty squared away. I felt like at the time my faith was pretty solid. Um, I'd been started working on the process of forgiveness uh, to eliminate a lot of hatred in my heart for the people that had hurt me. But uh, what I didn't know was that I still had some baggage that I needed to eliminate and law enforcement was going to, was going to bring it out. All right. So now I'm going to say something I've never said on the podcast, um, by, and by the way, um, I was a corrections officer for about a year. And the reason that I quit is there was an inmate that came in and he was getting ready to go to trial. And he would sit and talk to all the officers about all the crimes he committed towards children. And I couldn't do a thing about it. I just wanted to wring his neck and kill him. So I I actually walked away from that career at the time. Um, 
So now being a police officer and being a peace officer and taking your oath, did sometimes, did you have to second guess some of the things when you were arresting some people where it might have been like, you know what, you know, just a, just one bullet would take care of this whole situation. Did you ever struggle yeah. with anything? You ever, even if it's just a passing thought? You know, I think the only time that I ever felt some anger at any level was was when it pertained to a child that had had anything done to him. But I think that that's really any good cop is going to feel that now having incredible restraint um, because unless they present a, a legitimate threat at the moment, there's really nothing you can do except build a strong case against them and put them in prison. But yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I wanted to hurt the people that hurt me. I wanted to get them back for it. And that's why that's when I realized several months before our first child was born in 2000, Four, um, I was starting to do a lot of reflection on who I was and am I ready to be a father? Am I ready to be a daddy? And I felt like there was so much hate inside of me towards these people that, and I feel like hate is something that once you give life to it and you feed it, that it gets out of control and it's not, it doesn't just stay targeted towards the people that hurt you. It spills over into everything about your life and it can control everything about you. I mean, you become a monster and I didn't want to do that. So I started the process of forgiveness. And by the time I was a cop, the emotions were really under control and my emotions towards them were under control. But what wasn't under control was the brokenness inside, like the wounds and I, not, not brokenness, but wounds because I was still fighting it was the wounded soul and I needed to deal with that. And I was, uh, I just got to the point where I was tired of fighting. And I know a lot of people know how that feels. You feel defeated. You feel like it's just one battle after another. You can't catch a break. No matter what you do, nothing goes right. And I was there. I know exactly how that feels. And um, I think one of the hardest things any law enforcement officer, any first responder will ever deal with is a crime against a child. Uh, in any facet and it's just it's it's a reflection of the the pure evil that exists in our country and in our world today and i'm thankful for good cops who fight back against that garbage well for me in my house we bleed red we bleed blue and we bleed green um a couple Amen. years ago, my daughter was actually a uh a police officer for halloween so my house is, you know, we were 100% for, for good cops. Yeah. 99% of them are good. So I don't want right. to hear, I don't want to hear any crap. If you guys are watching it, <laughs> if, if you're, if you're a police hater, just log off now because uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, so now how did you go from police to hostage negotiator? Cause I think uh, that's, that's really interesting. <laughs> so I was, I started off on night shift patrol and my entire um, law enforcement, the entire six years I was in law enforcement was with the same agency. It was a, a local municipality and uh, moved me from, from night shift patrol to day shift patrol, traffic homicide. And while I was in traffic homicide, they sent me to uh, a training where uh, I became trained as an FBI trained hostage negotiator. And then they put me, moved me to criminal investigations and, um, yeah, so it was, you know, I, 
it was just an added skill set that I felt, you know, if I could have any specialty training, this is probably going to be the thing that would help me in any aspect of life, whether it's on patrol or interrogations, you know, interviewing suspects, I mean, uh, witnesses or victims or, um, or any aspect of life in general, it would help the, the skills. And so it was something that I wanted to be able to do because there's tremendous power in, in our words and how we use our language and how we use our words to deescalate something or even help someone who is in a really, really painful place of life to not, you know, help them walk through that and give them hope again or get them the help that they need at the very least. And so, yeah. So for me, it was, uh, I had some great people around me that trained me really well. And I was never a leader on that team. I was never the best at it. I was never a superstar, never in charge of a case. It was just a training that I learned and, and I've tried to, to use to the best of my abilities in some way. All right. So then let me ask you a question because, you know, yesterday I had a friend of mine come on. He was a, uh, a Marine served 20, 23 years. And on the outside, he looked great. You know, the Marine, he was trip fit, trim, had a beautiful uniform, but nobody knows he was dealing with, he was a meth addict because he was trying to keep up. Yeah. He was trying to, you know, he inside he was burning, but outside everything looked hunky dory. So yep. if somebody would have took a snapshot of you doing all these classes and all this, they would have thought, oh, everything is unicorns, rainbows, uh, but, they, <laughs> yeah. but they wouldn't realize what's going on inside of you when you go home, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was, um, I got to a point to where you know, I never. I've never done drugs. The probably the closest thing I've done to a drug other than alcohol would, uh, would be my nicotine habit, um, or using uh, CBD or Delta eight to help alleviate migraines on occasion. Um, but you know, I never resorted to drugs and, and I'm grateful that for that, but I was drinking and drinking will kill you just as fast about anything else as much as I was drinking and it just hardened me. It made my heart hard. I was already hard hearted. If you had a snapshot of the inside outside, I was squared away hard by, you knew that you could tell that I was probably hyper vigilant. People who knew what they were looking at knew that. And I remember going to the doctor for an annual physical, which they made us do um, a few years in was go and start having physicals, doing PT tests, ongoing, all that stuff. And, I just talk, doc was like, Hey, how do you feel? I'm like, I'm just tired all the time, man. I mean, I'm training, I'm working out and all this, but I'm just exhausted. And I don't understand why. And so he gave me these different diagnoses and names of stuff or whatever, and, um, did blood work. And so my thyroid was not working properly. So he gave me medicine for that. And then at 32, I think I was 32 years old. Um, my testosterone was like 146. And so the first thing he did was like, Hey, here's a, here's a medicine. Here's an injection. Uh, we're going to give you testosterone and take care of the, the thyroid. But it was, it was because of hypervigilance and hypervigilance and stress increased levels of cortisol. I'm not a doctor. Yep. I'm just learning this through nine years of injecting, you know, testosterone. Uh, and so, but it was, it was a relationship that, that cortisol 
you know, causes your testosterone to plummet, drives up estrogen, and it can lead to really, really bad health issues down the road. Not, not, you know, just, um, you know, being really lethargic or obesity, but, uh, it, it really affects your ability, your mindset, your ability to think your mental health. It affects everything about you, mood, your ability to overcome, uh, obstacles and challenges. Um, it certainly affects resiliency. And so I got into a place to where, um, I just, I didn't want to live anymore. And, and I was living, but I was inside. I, I didn't want to live anymore. And, um, it was pain from the time I was a little boy to the time I was a teenager through adulthood. Nothing ever happened to me as a cop. I mean, you know, I never had anybody try to kill me other than having fights or people pull weapons or whatever, but nobody ever tried to kill me. And thank God I never had to take anybody's life. Um, I certainly wasn't afraid to, but I'm glad I didn't have to do that. But inside I was, I was a mess and I was trying everything I could to get help from things that don't really help you. Um, I was being unfaithful to my wife in different ways. And, um, I was more than anything unfaithful to God. And I look back now as a man who I fully believe has been healed and set free and, and restored and redeemed. And there's no condemnation, but it breaks my heart to see who I was then in the pain that I caused people around me. There was a, there was a call I had <laughs> and it was a, uh, it was a world war two veteran who was involved. And this World War II veteran, um, it was just a car crash. You know, it wasn't nothing like a major deal or anything. It was just a minor car crash. And I finished my business and taking care of what I needed to do. And I asked him, I said, sir, I was like, I have a lot of respect and gratitude for what you do and for what you've done for our country and the, you know, you, the life you've paid for us and, is there any wisdom that you can give me before I leave you here? And I remember he looked at me, I'm going to try to say this while I get emotional. Um, but he looked at me and he was like, you know, in World War II, there's an island and I'm probably going to screw the name of this island up, but it was battle of Peleliu and it was an island in the Pacific and the United States was winning wars on different fronts and things were going great, but they needed to use this island as a strategic place to launch to attack the Empire of Japan. But several thousand Japanese soldiers, troops, however you want to call them, occupy the island. So there were some disagreements among military leaders. I'm summarizing this. If you're military historians listening, don't beat me up. I'm, I'm giving a civilian account based on research. And so they, they said, hey, this will take us three or four days to, to take this island, and it should be you know, this is going to be a battle, but we can do this in a couple of days. So, um, there went up, they went up taking like three months and there was, I believe it said around 6,000 Marine casualties. The United States emerged victorious. They took the Island. Um, but even after the battle was over, there remained undetonated, uh, explosives. And he said, you know, 
to this day, if you are a tourist to this island, there's a path that you have to stay on. And if you get off that path, you could encounter one of these undetonated explosives. And he's like the same things in your life, especially as a cop, but in general, as a man, if you go through life and you don't deal with the explosives that are sitting there, unforgiveness, bitterness, hatred, he said, one day they're going to go off and they're just going to hurt people around you. that have done nothing to you, but love you. And I remember coming home one day and taking my gear off and sitting in the recliner in the living room, facing the TV. The TV was not turned on, just a blank TV. And my wife is behind me at a little island in the kitchen. And uh, I can hear the water turn off now. And she, uh, she said, hey, how was your day? Sweet voice. And I was so hard. And I had no reason to be hard towards her. I was so hard and so cold and so calloused. I just responded with fine. And like, what did she do to deserve my attitude and, and how I was? And uh, we wound up having an argument. I moved out. Uh, we were separated for a little bit. And on a Sunday morning, I was living in a portable or like a portable office building. And on a Sunday morning, I knew everybody would be in church. You know, that's what everybody does especially deep South Alabama, they go to church on Saturday morning. So I put my uniform on and got in my Mark patrol car and pulled over to the South side of town, an abandoned gas station, back my car in the parking lot, pulled a weapon out to go in my life. And I paused. Now, some would say that I paused because I lacked courage to go through with it. And I believe I paused because I had courage to fight back one more time. And I cried out to God of whom I had really had a very difficult relationship with for a long time. In fact, months leading up to this moment, um, and this sounds really terrible, but I'd interrogated God, not on his existence, but on the basis of goodness and love. Like, where were you at when I was a little boy being hurt? Where were you at when I was a teenager and this stuff was happening? People that were supposedly your people were taking advantage of me and deceiving me and hurting me. Where were you at? And, and so that day I, I paused and I, I cried out and I said, Hey, I don't know if you can hear me, but if you can do something in my life, you can have it. Otherwise I'm, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of hurting. I'm tired of losing. And no matter what happens, I screw everything up and I'm done. And brother, I'm going to tell you something. I am the farthest thing from a religious person you'll ever meet. I'm messy. I'm gritty and I can be very utterly imperfect 99% of the time. But I, I don't know any other way to tell you than this. I have hugged my wife and my children and friends and family all across this country. I know what it feels like to be loved and the warmth of a genuine embrace. But the presence I felt that day was more perfect than anything that I can capture in words. And I've tried, I've tried to put it in all the books I've written. I've tried to capture that, that encounter because my goal became that day. It was the most perfect love, the most perfect peace. It was, it gave me a reason to live again. And I choose to believe it was the love of a living God that embraced me through the power of the Holy spirit. And it gave me purpose again. He gave me life again. He gave me a reason to want to live more than I wanted to end my life. And uh, God restored my marriage. 
He restored. Now everything wasn't made perfect the, for that day. It took some time. Uh, okay, well, for one second, because I want to dig a little bit deeper on yeah. that. But first, I want to thank our sponsors because without them, obviously, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. But I want to thank you guys that that have picked up my book, A Hero's Journey from Darkness to Light. Um, it hit number one twice on Amazon. And the reason why I mention it, because it's something that's important today. A lot of people don't know what addiction looks like. They don't know what depression and anxiety actually looks like. So if you pick up the book, the last two chapters are, what does depression look like? It's not what you think it looks like. And what does suicidal ideations look like? It's not what you think it's like. And if you guys pick up the book, 100% of the profits go to help veterans and first responders struggling with PTSD and homelessness. So if you're interested in the book, write book down below. Guys, and my friend Eric, um, Eric Allen, he's a brother, another brother in Christ. Without him, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today. He taught me everything I know about podcasting. So if you guys are interested in having your own show, monetizing your own show, being a guest, or being a sponsor, write podcast below and I'll get you that information. But, you know, um, let me ask you a question, brother, because... I know a lot of people, including myself, that have had that, not that same exact thing happen to you, um, when you when you felt his presence. But a lot of people have felt it and then went on living the way they used to live. They didn't change the way, like for me, I was not the same person at, at 9.05 on September 11th that I was at 9.08 on September 11th. That totally changed my life. But I had to do something after I had that feeling. I had that closeness. So talk to us because, you know, my, my brother James Clear wrote an amazing book called Atomic Habits. And if you don't change your habits, mm-hmm. then you're not going to change your life. So talk to us. You had that moment where God, you, had, you felt the love, but then you had to change you couldn't be the same person so what's what steps did you take to start slowly changing into the man that you are now well the first thing was i didn't try to attack everything at once i made a decision that i was going to begin working on the three parts of who i am mind body and soul and so I really didn't know where to start, but I knew that those were three things I wanted to work on. And so instead of drinking every night, I began to write and I had a little Mm -hmm. blog and it was called consider this. (laughs) It was, it was pitiful, but it's where I started. And so I wrote this little blog and then I would just sit down and write. And there's a lot of things I wrote that I never published. And then I wrote and self published a book, a couple of books, And, uh, so basically the first step I did was replacing one bad habit with something good, something positive, something healthy. And, um, it took me some time to understand that we can have all of the principles and all of the instruction and all of the teaching in the world. But until we understand that his perfect love demonstrated for us demands a response and I wanted my life to become a proper response for what he had done for me. Like it's more than a teaching that you hear 
within four walls on Sunday. It is real power. It is real power. And so it became, okay, what can I do so that my life properly reflects the deep heartfelt gratitude that I have for what he's done for me. So I started off by replacing drinking with writing and spending more time with my family, being more intentional there, uh, working on being a good dad, going to church, praying, reading my Bible and just pouring myself into that. And, um, and then, uh, several months later, I felt a call to do something a little different and we've gone on to do a total of nine books and touched, you know, well into 140,000 lives through books. And I don't have many through speaking or interviews, but, um, I felt a call to do something that was even bigger and that's where I am today. All right. So then I, I teach a course, I teach a 12 week course. I call it the three pillars of forgiveness. Yep. I didn't learn it by myself. I I've learned it through I'm sober 34 years through the rooms awesome. NA, NA, all that. Um, but the, the first one I tell everybody is you have to ask for forgiveness from the people that you hurt mm-hmm. because uh, we all know that hurt people hurt people. So, you know, I had to go back and I call it clearing the wreckage of my past. I don't know what happened. Uh, boom. Don't know where he went. Let's see. He got, he got, there we go. For some reason we got knocked off. There we go. All right, there we go. I don't know what happened, but oh well. Uh, so I had to go back and clear the wreckage of my past. Yeah, I, yeah. Had to ask, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to ask people that I've hurt for forgiveness. Whether they forgave me or not, that's oh, not man. my problem. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and some those, of, are, those are hard conversations to have. And some of them are, are gone. So some of them I had to write letters to and then burn them. Um, and then, then I also, now this is one I know is hard is I had to forgive those that have hurt me. Mm-hmm. And that's still an ongoing process. It's never perfect. Um, but the hardest thing was because, and I'm, te- I'm talking to you veterans, I'm talking to you first responders, uh, police officers. We see and do stuff that no human should ever see or do. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I don't hear talk on any other podcast, but this one. And I wrote it down because we never talk about moral injury. And being a police officer and, and being a veteran, like I said, we see and do things that we should never do. And then when we retire, a lot of us are left with our own devices, a pistol in our hand and a bottle of whiskey mm-hmm. because we don't forgive ourselves. And sometimes we can forgive everybody else, but forgiving ourselves sometimes seems to be part of it. So how did you start? You know, because I believe that God can't forgive me if I can't forgive others. That's so that's right. the way I looked at it. So, so, But for you, how, was, how did that go with you? Forgiveness began to, um, you know, I started it years ago, years ago. And so I think that it's something that takes, you know, you can't put a time limit. You can't bookend it. Um, but forgiveness is the first part of healing for me, in my opinion. It's the first part of healing. And and so I forgave the people that hurt me. And I knew that I'd forgiven them when I no longer had negative emotional ties to what they had done to me. 
Um, and then there were some people that I'd hurt, words I said, uh, things I'd done, and I went to them, asked them to forgive me. Uh, the hardest thing I've ever done wasn't forgiving people who raped me or sodomized me. Um, the hardest thing I ever did was look in the mirror and forgive me. And but here's what here's what I've I believe I believe that first of all, as a follower of Christ, faith is uh, forgiveness is an act of obedience to God that we take in faith. Because I say that because you're not going to feel any different the first time that you say, I forgive you. In fact, it may not, you may not feel any different the first three times, five times, or 10 times. It may take you years to get there, or it may not take you that much, but it's something that you have to do as an act of faith in obedience to God. And, uh, because look, look, there was times that I didn't want to forgive people that were really close to me, like really close to me. And I, I won't get into all that, but I, I didn't want to forgive some of the people that were really close to me. And I, I remember having this feeling like after all I've forgiven you for, who are you to withhold forgiveness from somebody else? Hmm. And then I began to even <laughs> feel right that there, about myself. And that's in scripture right there. They even, they even oh, yeah. about that with, with the talents. Yeah. yeah. Oh Yeah. All right. So then how do you go about, because this is something that really interests me. Um, how do you go about, no, as I know the people that have hurt me, they're still alive today. Mm -hmm. And I did get a chance to um, talk to them about it and, you know, whatever. How do you, how did you go about it? If the people that were still hurting you are still walking this green earth, did you ever confront um, no, because there were some issues that prevented that. Um, it was more like they've heard me enough because anytime I do a media interview, they hear it. You know what I mean? And they hear me saying, I forgive you. And, and they may be dead or alive. I don't know where they're at today. I have no idea. Uh, I, I wish everybody the absolute best period. Um, so it was, it was literally between me and God. And, and there are times when forgiveness, um, especially if you're in a situation where abuse is involved and you're not to a point to where you need to put yourself in that situation, that that process of forgiveness, it is perfectly okay for that to be between you and God. Um, and there are times where if you wrong somebody, then you can go to them and say, um, Hey, I've, I'm sorry. I, I hurt you. Will you please forgive me? But there's also times when you don't have to put yourself in position because number one, they're not going to be receptive or understanding of it, especially when there's so much manipulation when it comes just naturally to them. So you want to be, you want to take, you be, be wise about how you, you know, you approach that. And so, for me, it was between me and God. Now, there's been other instances where I've approached people that have done something to harm me or I've done something to hurt them in some way. I've never done anything physically to hurt anybody. It's mostly my words, and which is one of the reasons why I write encouraging words now is because I want to give life with everything I say or do. Um, I was a hard-hearted man, and I cut you down with my words. 
And so I try to give life now. So yeah, just be cautious if you're approaching somebody that, especially abusive situation like that, don't put yourself in a, at a risk to, to send you down a spiral. All right. So now, because I'm just thinking back because I lost my vision. I lost 80% of my vision a couple of years back. Yeah. And my hearing got really good. Not according to my wife, but, <laughs> but I hang on certain words that you say and you, you kind of alluded to it. You didn't say it, but you kind of alluded to it. You know, a lot of us, if you've been had abusive situations uh, in your childhood or as teenagers, your relationships kind of get skewed in a way, mm-hmm. whether that's the, the, the physical relationship. Um, a lot of us, you know, start sleeping around, start watching stuff we're not supposed to watch. And the relationships are not exactly godly relationships. Mm-mm. So how did you go about saying, okay, I want to be, I'm no longer going to be the guy that, you know, stepped out or whatever. How did you go about rectifying and saying, all right, this is the man that I, I want to be. This is the man I am now. How did you think, go about that? I think the biggest thing for me was understanding that, um, that I had to man up that, you know, we could, we could run from stuff. Like I got so emotionally numb as a cop that the regular stuff, the pursuits and the foot chases, the fights, the calls really didn't move the needle a lot with me anymore with the rush. And so, um, and I use all that as an excuse. I made bad decisions. I did made some really bad decisions and I realized that, I had a gift and that gift was my wife and my children. And, um, I had to repent, turn my turn directions, change my behavior. Um, and understand, you know, we could, we could look at the, the, the reasons behind why we do things. And there are, there are reasons why people who are traumatized at a, as children at sexual abuse, there's reasons why they do things, but I don't want to use any of that ever as an excuse. And so fix it, change your behavior. How you change your behavior? What are you doing today? What is your priority? Is your priority to fulfill selfish needs, selfish desires, or is it to be the best husband, the best wife, the best father, the best mother, the best man or woman that you can be. And most of all, honor God with your actions and decisions. And so I'd become like, very much like the people I hated. Like I just slimy is how I felt. I felt dirty and that's not who I wanted to be. I was like running from hate and uh, running from pain and running from all this stuff. And so I just, I made a decision. I've had enough of this bull crap and I'm going to do something that's, I'm going to make a change and it's going to start with me. It's going to start in my heart. And, um, and, you know, having self-control, and surrendering to God on a daily basis, living in a place of constant surrender before him really, really tempers some of those stupid things that we tend to like to do. Um, whether it's, you know, using substances to alleviate pain or, um, whatever it is, bad habits, whatever, uh, it positions us in a place where we are connected to a source of healing and a source of freedom and a source of comfort that will actually pay off. Like it's real. It's not, it's not fake. Like some of the other stuff we do. 
And so making those decisions, a conscious decision and, and working to get to the root of the problem and understanding why you do what you do. And now we can change behaviors. And I'm just very grateful that God has blessed me and given me grace to be where I am today because I certainly don't deserve it. Me too. I'm with you, brother. Now, talk. let's talk about this amazing book. Guys, like I said, page 33 to 35 totally changed my life because I realized that no matter who I talk to on my show, everybody's got a blue room. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us are afraid to unlock the room and go back in it. But I think some, the only way to go back in and sweep it out is you got to open that door back. You got to unlock the door and go in to sweep it out and repaint. So talk to us about, you know, what it was like writing your book. Because for me, writing my book was very cathartic, but it also opened up a large wound that I had to heal. And I actually had to go back and ask people, did this really happen? Because I was so drunk, I don't remember. <laughs> Yeah. No. But then I also had people, I told them I'm writing a book and they're like, oh my God, am I in it? I'm like, yeah, but don't worry. I didn't mention your name. Yeah. No. What was it like writing your book and was it cathartic for you? Yeah, it was, but it also was probably one of the hardest things I've done in my career as a writer, as an author, um, because I've talked about it on platforms from stages for years but it's different when you put it into a book. I mean, you could talk about it for an hour, two hours. You're going to get on a plane, get in a car, you're going to leave. You probably never see them again. But now it's documented forever that I'm unconquered. And I don't want you to think that I'm unconquered because I'm bad or I'm strong or I'm tough or I'm this or I'm that. It is solely 100 billion trillion percent <laughs> because of Jesus and it is not me. It is not my efforts. It is not my strength. And, um, I, I, for the first time in my life, while I was writing this book for the first time, I talked to a trauma therapist and I went through something called EMDR yeah. and uh, it was really my wife challenged me. She said, Hey, I need you to do me a favor. And I remember thinking, okay, what honeydews did she ask me to do that I forgot? And she said, you have this thing about not being good enough and it's wreaking havoc on you. I need you to talk to somebody. And years prior, like this is while I'm writing the book, and years prior, or right before I was writing the book, and years prior, I would have kind of bucked that. I would have been like, what are you talking about? You know, I would have fought back. But I called a buddy of mine. And he connected me to somebody, and we got on a call, I believe it was that day. And uh, I got to the source of it. And I remember, <clears throat> you know, the, the therapist was like, and this is going to sound weird. I'll just give you a heads up. It'll sound a little weird, but roll with me. She was like, can you put a a shape on it or color on it? And I was like, it's like you ever been in the dark where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face? Mm -hmm. I said, it's like that. And she's like, okay, is it a person or, or a shape like round square or whatever? I said, it is a silhouette of a being. I don't know if it's man or woman. It's just a silhouette of a 
like a, it looks like a person. And uh, she said, what do you feel when you look at it or when you're around it? And I could see it standing in front of me. And, um, and it was absolutely heart stopping terror. And I'm like, I have fears, but I overcome them. I've never felt anything like this. And, um, and so we went back in and started doing some more processing and different things. And, uh, she said, now, what do you hear? Do you hear anything? Do you see anything? And the same voice that spoke to me and rescued me in a patrol car met me in that conversation and said, Hey, I know you don't want to, but we're going to face this and we're going to do it together. I've got your back. And if I have brothers that have my back, I will walk into anything. You understand? Like you have a reliable brother. You will do anything together, but it's a little different when the Holy spirit whispers to you, I've got your back. And again, I felt that perfect love. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was healing. It was therapeutic. It was still the hardest thing I ever had to do because it, it, for a number of reasons, number one, going deep into those wounds. Number two, um, because I didn't want this book to be the Adam Davis story. Like I didn't want it to be a show about me. I wanted to tell my story, but I wanted to talk more about victory and how to overcome it, how to win, how to live unconquered, being, being an unconquered person, what that looks like more than I talk about glorifying the pain, because I think there's times that the pain has been all we know. And so we put it up on a throne or on a pedestal and it becomes an idol. It becomes a God liturgy in our life and we worship it. And we don't even realize what we're doing instead of talking about the healer, the one who can deliver the one who can set free. And so unashamedly, unapologetically, it was with God's help I was able to do this book, and I pray that it touches lives. That's the biggest thing. I want it to help people find transformation, find deliverance, find healing, and get set free. And like I said, it's it's affected my life more than you'll ever know. So if somebody's out there that are listening to this, because like I said, every single person in this world has their own blue room. Oh, yeah, yeah. No who you are. Some of us have multiple rooms. Some of mm -hmm. us have mansions. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so if somebody's, you know, if there's a veteran, if there's a first responder out there and they got their own blue room and they need help, what are some, some things that you can say, to, how, how can they open the lock of that blue room and start cleaning it out and repainting and refurnishing? First of all, acknowledge the pain. I ignored the pain for a very, very, very long time. And all it's doing is the roots of that pain are going deeper and deeper and deeper into your soul. And it's gaining more power and more control over you. So stop now in this moment, acknowledge the pain. Just be frank. I mean, like be straight up about it. This sucks. This is horrible. Then you could begin the process of saying, okay, I can't control what this person or this, whatever, whoever, whatever did to me, 
but to starting right now in this moment, I can control how I respond to this. Maybe I haven't responded properly before this, but I'm fighting back starting today. Number three, do not try to do this on your own. Isolation, complacency will get you killed. It will get you killed. So we all have people that we can reach out to find somebody you're comfortable talking to, um, find somebody that you're comfortable pouring your heart out to. And I've talked to, I don't know how many people just, I mean, I've done it for eight years, but since this book is released, I don't know how many phone calls I've had, uh, and their breakthrough phone calls. I mean, it is incredible, but surrender that pain, come to God with open hearts and open hands get to a place of absolute desperation for him, but don't try to do this by yourself. Don't try to do this by yourself. Um, this can be the best day of your life. This can be a mile marker. This can be where a flag that says I live unconquered is planted on the soul of your heart because of a savior who died, not only for our physical wounds, but he died for those internal ones too. And it's time to dethrone the trauma and the pain and the memories that have been on a throne in your life and put the one who deserves to be on the throne there. And that's the healer. That's the deliverer. That's the great I am. And be unapologetic. Run towards him without abandon. Don't do it alone. Acknowledge the pain. Run to Jesus. Reach out if you need help. I love it, brother. So, like I said, I got my copy. and Thank you. And like I said, that just if anything, even if it was just those two pages to let every let me know that I got a blue room and it doesn't have to stay blue anymore. So that's that's what I got out of the book for me personally. And it changed it's changed my life. So where can we find the book? How can we get in touch with you? How can we yeah. support your mission? Yeah, it's really, I mean, you can get it anywhere. Amazon, Barnes Noble, Target, Walmart, you name it. Uh, you can go to unconqueredbook.com and that's going to take you where you need to go. Um, working on some details for uh, a new method to be able to garner some more support. Uh, that'll come later. So be sure to visit unconqueredbook.com and you'll be able to see more about that. Visit Amazon. I appreciate your reviews and I'd love to hear from you. I, I love connecting with the listeners when they hear my story on podcasts like yours. And, um, and I love to hear how maybe you get set free. Now, there's also a, a, a daily journal for law enforcement officers. Yeah. So behind the badge is uh, the best selling book I have to date. And it's a 365 day devotion for law enforcement. I also have Bulletproof Marriage, which is a 90 day devotion. I co-authored with a gentleman by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. I've got one called On Spiritual Combat. It's 30 Missions for Victorious Warfare. Uh, along with a number of books, I co-authored a uh, daily devotion for military called Behind the Lines with uh, Force Recon Marine veteran Chad Robichaux uh, for Mighty Oaks programs. And so if you're military, I encourage you to check out Behind the Lines. If you're married, I encourage you to check out Bulletproof Marriage. If you're hurting and you want to pretend like you're not, or if you just want to kind of read the book and get the story, the full story, check out Unconquered. I'd invite you to do it. I love it, brother. And I, like I said, bro, I just want to say thank you. No, you've, thank you. You've been a blessing in my life, and I'm grateful for your friendship. And most of all, I want to thank you for being a brother in Christ, because that means you got to put up with me forever. That's right. <laughs> and same here, brother. Same here. So, guys, like you, like I, 
I say, you know, Joel, Joel Osteen, I love him. And something that he says, you know, you can choose to be the victim or the victor. Guys, please make the decision to no longer be the victim and be the victor. Make sure you pick up his book. Like I said, I got mine. Um, I'm probably going to go through it at least three times. Um, right now I'm going through it. I'm marking it. I'm color coding it. So make sure you pick up your copy. Reach out to Adam. Just say, hey, great, great interview. Great talking to you. And I'm sure that if you have any questions, I'll answer them for you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I forgot one last thing. If you want to, you can text me today. Text the word unconquered to area code 615-492. Two three five four. That's area code six one five four nine two two three five four. Just send the word unconquered to me. The first message is automated. The rest are from me. I send out occasional encouraging messages, and you can interact with me if you need to. I love it. I'm gonna get that. I got I got your number ready, but I'm gonna make sure I got that number. Do it. Uh, Do it. All right, guys. So remember, um, vertical momentum. The only way to go is but up. And I will see you guys next week. Have an amazing weekend. Adam, brother, thank you so no, much. No, thank you, brother. Thank God you. God bless you and your beautiful family. Thank you so much. All right, be good, brother. See you. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.